Welcome, writers and weavers, to episode six of Writing the Broomstick. Today's episode, we're doing something a wee bit different. We're answering some questions that have come up in the past few weeks from you, our listeners. And they're all weird, wonderful, and very relevant to this magical space. Side note, uh, Jen and I had to record separately this week because of some scheduling conflicts. So you'll notice in this episode, there is um, much less banter and uh, giggle fits and no breaking out in song, unfortunately. But I promise we don't plan on making a habit out of this. So without further ado, here are the much anticipated questions we're addressing in this episode. What's the difference between magic and witchcraft? Are fairies big or small? And why, pray tell, are there so many variations of them? What is the connection between black cats and witches? And lastly, what are warlocks? Because they're actually not what most people think they are. So with that said, let's take a look at our first question, which is something short and sweet to get us warmed up. The question is... What's the difference between magic and witchcraft? Sounds easy enough. Well, it is and it isn't. On the most basic level, witchcraft is the practice of magic, but that's on paper. In real life, witchcraft is often seen as a dark art. Even hearing the word witchcraft might make you think of animal sacrifices, hex bags, and evil spells. In places that are still very superstitious about witches, and I happen to live in one of them, the word witchcraft doesn't exactly conjure positive vibes. On the other hand, in the neo-pagan and new age community, witchcraft is looked at in a much more positive or benign light. It is seen as simply whatever a modern witch does to practice magic. There is no negativity attached to this definition within the community that I've seen. So, what's magic? I thought this was going to be easy, but it's not so straightforward. Magic encompasses the rituals, beliefs, and techniques of changing something in the natural natural world using one's willpower or some supernatural power. If you want to look at it this way, magic sits somewhere between religion and science. But again, I feel the need to point out the tension here. I mean, to me, magic is not just a ritual or technique, but a feeling I get in the pit of my stomach. It's kind of like a warm, bright energy that dances in the air like sun particles <laughs> or something like that. It's knowing what card I'm going to draw from my tarot deck or having a sudden thought about a friend pop into my head only to get a message from them 10 seconds later. I can't always point to it, but I feel it. But that's my experience with magic. I have had zero religious upbringing and my parents have always leaned towards new age spirituality, which has obviously left its mark on their children. But for many people, especially deeply religious folk, magic conjures a completely different and often negative feeling. For others, magic is simply sleight of hand and illusion, you know, like magic tricks and like rabbits appearing out of hats and stuff like that. So we have our textbook definitions of magic and witchcraft, but we also have the real-world definitions of them. So what is magic to you? How do you define it? This makes me want to point out that our dumb-dumb ancestors thought everything was magic or the workings of witchcraft until they realized that whatever they were afraid of could be explained by science centuries later. So maybe that's another definition of magic, something that hasn't yet been explained by science. So again, at the most basic level, witchcraft is the process or practice of performing magic, and magic is a supernatural force that changes the natural world. 
All right, one question down, three more to go. Yes, awesome summary. And it's so important to distinguish too. I see magic as being in the everyday, in the simplest of intentions, and you put that so beautifully. So I'm jumping in now to are fairies big or small, and why are there so many different variations of them? For those of you who've read my book, The Wise One, or who've listened to our first episode on books we recommend for your world building, you already know that fairies are my jam. I've been intrigued by them for several years now and have thus um, a, shall we say, non-standard amount of knowledge about them, <laughs> which is why we'll be doing a whole episode on fairy lore at some point. But today we're just responding to the core question. So let's get straight to the point. Firstly, let's just establish what a fairy is. They are nature spirits that live in a realm close to our own. They tend to the earth and the elements and are therefore also classified as elementals. So when we think of fairies, what's the first thing that comes to mind? Tiny, pretty creatures with wings and kind of sparkly, right? We have Tinkerbell to thank for that image and pop culture to credit for the continuous portrayal of them as delicate, feminine, adorable little things. But if you dig deep into New Age spirituality, you'll find that there are actually many types of fairies and they appear differently depending on the culture. They're not only hanging out in Ireland, which is what so many people associate them with. So besides Celtic folklore, they can also be found in Slavic, German, English, French folklore, and beyond. And they're certainly not all dainty like Tinkerbell. For instance, lots of people aren't aware of this, but leprechauns are types of fairies. So are brownies. You know those stumpy little creatures that like to take shelter in people's homes? <laughs> Say that as if you've seen them in your home. Um, but hey, if you hear some small footsteps stomping around your house in the middle of the night, it may just be a brownie sweeping under the rug. Apparently, they like to do housework. Not a bad fairy to have hanging around. You may also know of the term nymph, which comes up in Greek mythology quite a bit. So if they're classifying a nymph as a type of fairy, then these woodland creatures are actually human-sized. In Norse mythology and Scandinavian folklore, elves are more commonly known as the resident nature spirits, though they're also considered fairies. And more often than not, they also appear as tall as an adult human or short as a toddler, like you might find in Santa's workshop and pretty much every Tim Allen Christmas movie. So to sum up, no, fairies are not necessarily tiny winged creatures, nor are they always drop-dead gorgeous. In fact, some have been described as being rather ugly. In one of the books I recommended in the first episode, um, called Fairy Tale by Signe Pike, she described seeing um, a frightening troll-like being in her Mexico hotel room. And she finds out later that they're known as Los Aluxes, a type of Mexican fairy. These are little Mayan sprites that are said to be guardians of the home. That's all I'll say for now on the topic, but I mean, there's a lot I had to skip over in terms of origin, um, their temperament, the history of their existence. Promise we'll get into all of that some other time. Okay, wow, that was super interesting. Thanks, Katrina. And in case it isn't obvious to the entire world at this point, Katrina is the fairy expert. 
<laughs> anyway, moving on. Our next question is, what's the connection between black cats and witches? So I'm super happy I get to talk about this because I find this so interesting. So let's find out. So the aesthetic of the black cat riding behind its witch on her broomstick and standing at the foot of her cauldron are images that are so commonplace we barely give them a moment's thought. But is there more to the black cat than just the Halloween decoration? What's the deal there? Well, the image of the witch with her black cat dates back to the English witch trials when just about everyone was terrified of demonic forces roaming the earth and taking on human or animal form. It was believed that animals, especially cats, toads, and mice, were what we call familiars, or a sort of demonic companion. And when I say demonic, I really mean that these animals were thought to be demons. Now, we absolutely promise that we're going to do an episode dedicated solely to the witch, but for now, suffice it to say that witches during this time were thought to be working for the devil, and pretty much whatever they did that was deemed outside the realm of normal Christian life was perceived as evil. Not weird, not a little odd, not indicative of a mental disorder, but straight up evil. This is a quote from Helen Parrish from the University of Reading's History Department. Animal familiars treated as pets and companions were not innocent participants in the practice of witchcraft, but creatures with agency, demons in corporeal form, whose interactions with the witch were problematic both conceptually and practically. Familiars were evidence of the permeable boundary that existed between humans and animals, the presence of demonic ritual and blood feeding among practitioners of magic, the moral and theological depravity of witchcraft, and the transgression of nature that lay at the heart of the witch. As a result, the narrative of the familiar and the search for physical evidence of interaction between witch and familiar became a vibrant thread in English witchcraft narratives. So to sum up, the cat is a witch's familiar, the embodiment of her pact with the devil himself. Why black? Well, that's not so hard to guess. Black is the color of darkness, the furthest removed from the light of holiness. The image of the black cat has survived since the witch trials, becoming the most mainstream image of the familiar. And if we put the adorable memes and hilarious viral videos aside, it's easy to understand why the cat has always been seen as somewhat of an oddity. I personally have lived with cats almost my whole life, and they never cease to amaze me. There's something almost human about them, you know? It's like they can see right through you. It's almost as if they can understand you and are simply playing this docile, domestic, cutesy companion thing to spare your feelings and to continue to be fed and adored. I mean, they have a pretty sweet deal. So in order to get better a better understanding of the familiar... I want to tell you a little bit more about the demon. And if there are any Philip Pullman fans out there, I hope that all of this is starting to sound familiar. No pun intended. In Pullman's best-selling fantasy series, His Dark Materials, there's a whole menagerie of anthropomorphic animals that are assigned to the human characters. In this series, these familiars are actually called demons. The demon as we know it is an evil spirit thought to possess individuals or to act as the devil's servants, torturing souls for hell's eternity. Oh, yummy. There have been countless films and real-life incidents of demonic possessions, but the demon I'm talking about is not that. The demon I'm talking about is something that the ancient Greeks called daemons. And what is a daemon? In general, it is a nature spirit. 
In some texts, they materialize when a hero or great warrior dies, so I guess kind of like a ghost. A demon is not just one thing. There are different types of demons. Some inhabit the sea, some the underworld, some are responsible for blessing mankind, and some are, are malevolent. Despite all these different categories, and I found 11 so far, there are only two types of demons that have been treated with the holy Christian rinse. They have evolved into what we now know today as demons and guardian angels. The bad demons, or the cacodemonish, and I'm sorry for my pronunciation, sound much more familiar. They are evil or malevolent spirits that were unleashed when silly little Pandora opened that box. What we call guardian angels is a simple rebranding of what are known as demonish agathoi. Oh god, my pronunciation. They are benevolent spirits that do nice things like protect and bless humans. But there is another Damon flavor that Philip Pullman must have tasted when writing his dark materials because his version of the da demon, Damon, Damon, sounds a lot like what Socrates and Plato were talking about. Socrates described his Damon as a spirit that was gifted to him from the gods when he was born, but rather than existing outside of him, his demon was a part of him. To make it really simple, his version of the demon sounds a lot like Jiminy Cricket. Do you remember Jiminy Cricket? His favorite saying in Pinocchio was, always let your conscience be your guide. Socrates' daemon told him when he was doing something wrong and kept him on the path of goodness. Maybe it's just me, but I find it kind of funny that Jiminy's favorite phrase, which is a quote from the Bible actually, should have the word guide, seeing as how a daemon or familiars are also called something else. They are also called spirit guides. Okay, so before I get too much into that, let's look at Plato. Whose version of the daemon brings us even closer to his dark materials? Plato describes the daemon as a spirit guide who is assigned to everyone at birth. And unlike Socrates, the daemon is an external being, much like Pan is to Lyra in the Golden Compass. Plato's daemon is very much attached to its person and similarly acts as a sort of noble conscience. Okay, so I'm going to stop the history lesson right there, but I encourage all aspiring mythheads to continue reading up on the daemon because it gets so interesting, and I haven't even talked about Aristotle and Alexander the Great and the jinn and genius and all that stuff. So please, if you want to explore more, I fully encourage that. So where were we? <laughs> oh yeah, black cats. So the black cat is also known as the familiar, also known as the demon, also known as the daemon, also known as the spirit guide. If we were to apply the ancient Greek definition of the daemon to the black cat, it kind of puts a whole new spin on the stereotype, right? Were black cats, toads, and mice the kakodaimonish, or were they the platonic demons, the nice ones? The reason I took us all the way back to the ancient Greeks is because I think it's important to give the black cat the historical weight it deserves. Ask and you shall receive, listeners. I again maintain that if you're ever looking for inspiration for your book, start with the classics. But I also challenge anyone who wants to write a story about witches to really, really research these stereotypes or images we often take for granted. Because I can guarantee that when it comes to witches, whatever you find will really, really, really interest you. At least I hope so. Okay, that was a bit long-winded, but I hope that answers the question. Katrina, what's the last question? Oh my gosh, not long-winded at all. I'm obsessed with everything you just said. And it's crazy because that unlucky black cat stereotype is still widespread today, which is why you'll see tons for adoption still. And that just breaks my heart. So PSA of the day, if you're looking to get a cat, consider adopting a misunderstood and just as worthy black one. Okay, before I start chanting adopt, don't shop, let's dive into our final question. 
what are warlocks because they're not male witches. I don't know about you, but I believed warlocks were male witches since season one of Charmed when Piper's boyfriend ended up being just that. And that was 1998, people. We've seen warlocks in this context up until today, like the chilling adventures of Sabrina. And if you type what is a warlock on Google, the definition you'll get is sure to be a man who practices witchcraft, a sorcerer. Merriam-Webster will even go so far as to define it as a man practicing the black arts. But I'm here to bust this myth, and I'm crediting this finding to this wonderful little magic school in Montreal called Crescent Moon School of Magic and Paganism. Uh, It was founded in 1994 by a scholar and wise one named Scarlet, with the goal of introducing practitioners to a variety of magical paths and modern pagan belief systems. So do check it out if that speaks to you. Back to warlocks. So if they're not male witches, where does the term come from? Well, there are three possible derivations of this word. And oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I'm going to butcher so many of these pronunciations, so please bear with me. The first is that it stems from the Old English words warloga, where war meant faith, pledge, and truth, and loga meant to speak falsely. So warloga was a liar or oathbreaker. Later, it changed to warlo, then to warlow. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'm saying this right. Then to warlog in the 1400s. Then in Scotland, it changed to warlock uh, with just a K at the end in 1585, then to warlock, the proper spelling, in 1658. It was used as an insult. The second possibility is that it is actually of Latin slash Welsh origin at the time of the Roman occupation. The words warloga were changed to verloga, where ver meant truth or keep true. And loga was the root of the word meaning law, so a verloga was a keeper of the laws. The words changed to warloga, then warlog, and finally to warlock. God, I hope that was clear. Sorry about that. Please email with questions if you're not sure of the spelling there. Um, And the third explanation could be that the word derives from the Norse slash Germanic word. Here comes. (laughs) Vodlokur? Meaning watch guard. I am so sorry for butchering that word. It was hopeless from the start. So all this to say, the true meaning of the word warlock is a matter of interpretation. But to clarify, it does not and never did mean male witch. A male witch can simply be called a witch, or if they like, a wizard or a sorcerer. Though again, I'm not sure these terms have actual genders attached to them either. So why is any of this worth talking about? Because frankly, I'm a little irritated of seeing the word warlock slapped into pop culture when there's no real proof of its association with male witches. Information is right at our fingertips, writers, and when it's not, going old school and heading to a library to dig a little deeper can really go a long way. And keep an eye out also for some dissertations people have written. Those are often the best sources. Anyway, we would love to know what you think warlock means, or if you have any historical insight around the term that we might not have touched upon. Please, please, please let us know. So, Jen, 
I think we're done here. Okay, wow, what a magical ride today has been. Okay, children, we hope you learned something new today or were at least entertained by our answers. If there's a topic you want us to cover or you have a burning question you want to ask, such as, how do I start outlining my story? Or where do mermaid babies come from? Write to us on social media or email us. And if you liked what you heard today, why not leave a positive review on your podcast app? Your ratings and reviews help spread the word about our podcast's existence. Plus, it makes us feel all nice and warm and cozy on the inside. See you next week. Ciao, ciao for now now. Ciao for now. That's it, writers, weavers, and magic seekers. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Writing the Broom for all podcast-related goodies. Including upcoming episodes, witchy content, and our random thoughts. Until next time.